are in listen-only mode. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Jill Brooks, Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. Welcome to our monthly webinar, Medicare Audits, the OIG Work Plan 2015, presented by Stephen Bittinger of Knee Bittinger Law. We are so pleased to have Stephen joining us today. Stephen has developed a national reputation for his work in healthcare audit defense, payer appeals, and compliance. His audit defense and payer appeals team has had tremendous success in reducing exposure, swiftly developing corrective action, and successfully appealing Medicare, Medicaid, and major payer recoupment claims. Stephen's compliance team focuses on the growing legal arena of compliantly forming and developing integrated, multidiscipline, and specialty private medical practices. As an adoptive father, he also finds great satisfaction in representing adoption agencies in regulatory and litigation matters and individuals in private and step-parent adoptions. Before I turn it over to Stephen, I would like to point out that a copy of the slide deck is available for you on the control panel to download, and your CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Stephen? Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I'm saying hi from the uh, sunny tropical shores of Cleveland, Ohio, to everybody in New England getting poured on right now. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity that uh, Jill Brooks and First Healthcare Compliance has given me to present to you all today in an arena of the law that is actually very interesting to me and personal. So I, I start a lot of my presentations uh, with this slide. Uh, this is my family, and this is the, on the North Shore here in Lake Erie, uh, out in front of my house. And so uh, one of the reasons that I decided to go into the healthcare arena is that it's really personal to me uh, for a number of, of specifics. My second son, Luke, who's the one standing behind there on the top, I uh, was born with uh, some significant uh, physical um, deformities, and we had some amazing doctors that helped him through that. Uh, add to that that we almost lost him from a respiratory disease at three months old. And so uh, there were many different providers uh, over a number of years that were a part of his recovery. Uh, as you probably guessed, um, and from the introduction, two of my four children are adopted from Ethiopia. And it was amazing to meet uh, some of the medical providers in Ethiopia that helped uh, restore health to Isaac. That's my third son there that's sitting with my wife. So there's a lot of personal meaning um, to why I practice in healthcare. And more importantly, uh, the arena of audit defense and payer appeals has a real personal side to all of the providers and practice owners. Uh, I practice predominantly within uh, privately owned healthcare entities, and the arena I practice in is significant enough that uh, my work can help save jobs, help save a practice, help save livelihoods and careers. And so I, I feel a great deal of satisfaction when we can do our job well and it uh, continues a, a doctor's career in uh, what they've invested their life in and put so much time and energy. So why are we talking about uh, the OIG work plan for 15 when it's November of 15 
and the OIG work plan for 16 just came out? Well, there's really two main reasons. Uh, the first is that if you are uh, not a majority Medicare uh, practice, you still have a lot of uh, knowledge that you can gain from the work plan because most of your major payers and your supplemental plans, they normally audit on Medicare's primary audit issues 12 to 18 months behind. So the plan for 2015 from the OIG is now being worked through most of the major payers at this time. Uh, so most of the information that you will gain today will be very applicable to uh, major plans and your Medicaid uh, programs as well as your supplementals. Also, it's really important because it gives us a great measuring stick uh, for where the uh, payer arena of the law is at and what they're really focused on. The second major reason, unfortunately, is that the OIG work plan for 2016 is far less focused on giving providers very detailed information they need on what will be a target service and how to clean it up and more focused on trying to get their another $480 million added to their budget next year. So uh, the probably best guide we have for how audits will be focused from the major contractors moving forward is going to be 15 as well as for the, the payers. So I'm going to start with some of the high level. Uh, we're going to start with some of the high level results from uh, Medicare contract auditors during 2014. So uh, the OIG's work plan from fiscal year 2014, uh, there was reported uh, very significant recoveries, a total of $4.9 billion. Uh, $3 billion of that was from investigational receivables, and that is predominantly from what are called ZPICs, or Zone Program Integrity Contractors. And uh, you may not have heard of that acronym yet, uh, but hopefully you're very familiar or will make yourself very familiar with this uh, by the time this presentation is over. 1.1 billion of investigational receivables were from state's Medicaid Joint Task Forces. Uh, a lot of people within the healthcare arena don't realize that uh, most Medicaid uh, programs are very similar in scope and authority uh, to the federal program because of the federal funds within the programs. In 2014, the contractors recovered eight. 134.7 million in what are quote unquote just audit receivables, the racks. So I've been doing this for a number of years. Those figures were uh, certainly flip-flopped dramatically a number of years ago when the Re Recovery Act came out. Um, and many people learned a great deal about racks, but the predominant threat to private private practices, multi-specialty groups, and smaller healthcare entities our zone program integrity contractors. Uh, the really scary part of this is the DOJ and federal prosecutions. So in 2014, there were 4,017 individuals and entities excluded from federal programs. 
There are 971 criminal actions against individuals and entities. There were 533 civil actions for false claims and unjust enrichment filed in federal district courts, CMP settlements, and administrative recoveries related to provider self-disclosure matters. Uh, the total estimated savings from fiscal year 2014 was $15.7 billion. Um, and that's based on prior period uh, legislative, regulatory, and administrative actions. All right, the major focuses within uh, the audit arena for Medicare and supplemental plans in 2015 uh, begins with the hospitals. The hospitals originally were the majority target of the Recovery Act just because they had the highest volume of reimbursement and uh, the RACs could easily uh, make a very significant recovery based on just errors and emissions problems with major health systems. So uh, the hospitals are actually a very limited focus, less than 10% of audit resources during this year. And from what I can tell from 16, I'd say it's probably even a little less. Uh, their major targets throughout this year uh, for inpatient services were mechanical ventilation, medical education payments, cardiac catheterizations, biopsies, um, and I'm not going to pretend as a, to, uh, to be a medical provider and pronounce the diagnosis for the last disease. <laughs> uh, bone marrow and stem cell transplants for outpatient, it was dental claims, E&Ms billed at a new patient rate, all right, the new areas for 15 for hospitals it was that we have a review of hospital wage data that's used to calculate Medicare payments and adverse events in post-acute care for Medicare beneficiaries. Not going to spend a great deal of time here because uh, my firm and expertise uh, does not drill predominantly down within the hospital arena. Um, so we'll end also because it's a very low target for 15. Uh, nursing homes, hospices, and home health agencies are probably the majority target for this year and will certainly be along with Part D and pharmacy issues into 2016. So SNFs, um, Part A billing by SNFs is, a, is one of the primary targets. Uh, questionable billing patterns for Part B. Hospitalizations for nursing home residents for manageable and preventable conditions. Uh, for hospices, ones with assisted living facilities and general inpatient care will certainly be the highest risk within their uh, arena. And then home health agencies. Um, my heart goes out to anybody who is uh, the owner or a major director of a home health agency this year. Um, they have uh, heavily scrutinized the face-to-face -face documentation requirements. Uh, it's estimated that 32% or $2 billion in inappropriate payments uh, were, re were recovered or recorded uh, from the contractors in 2014. Something completely new on the radar for 15. Uh, I have seen a great number of this, but I've heard from colleagues around the country that uh, it has been slow in the making, is the Supplemental Medical Review Contractor. 
the OIG put out a mandate to CMS. They created a new contractor, and this integrity contractor is supposed to audit 100% of all HHAs in fiscal year 2015. Uh, from my current client base, predominantly around the Midwest, Southeast, and slowly growing into New England, um, I would say that I, I have not seen the type of widespread audit that uh, was mandated by the OIG, so this will certainly be an ongoing issue into 2016. Uh, it's estimated about 30% of the total uh, audit resources will be focused on SNFs, hospice, and HHA. If we uh, move into additional primary targets, uh, medical equipment and supplies, uh, we have the historical mobility devices. So anybody that's a DME manufacturer out there, I've got plenty of tips and guidance for you there. I've got a large DME manufacturer um, and uh, a medical device manufacturer here in Ohio that uh, we've brought a long way over the years. So the issues on power mobility uh, are pay payment requirements and add-ons for the face-to-face. -face. Uh, we have lower uh, limb prosthetics, nebulizers, uh, frequently re replaced supplies, and diabetes testing is probably becoming a majority target uh, just because of the enormous frequency of this disease uh, within our country. The testing supplies, um, are heavily scrutinized uh, for meeting payments requirements and basically effectiveness systems within the suppliers. Also, competitive bidding. Uh, there's going to be a mandatory post-audit, uh, post-award audit, and for diabetes testing supplies, we're going to have a market share review. Uh, that's a pretty complicated arena, so if anybody uh, is in that and has further questions after the presentation, please feel free to reach out and send me an email. Uh, estimated total percentage is about 15% uh, for audit resources in this target zone uh, for 2015, and also it's about the same moving into 2016. For other providers, uh, this is kind of the broad scope but I've only brought in what I would say is uh, probably the top 50-60% of targets for 15. Uh, these are, for the most part, uh, going to be perpetuated in 16. Uh, ambulance services, uh, they're going to be examined for questionable billing, medical necessity, and level of transport. Um, I, I know that I'm competing with everybody's lunch hour, so if you're in the middle of your sandwich right now or salad, I, I have to drop one funny story. Uh, I had a potential client call me a little while ago, uh, earlier this year, and he was running a t diagnostic testing uh, service out of a truck in about seven different states out west, and he didn't have a clue whether he was licensed or even if he should be licensed in any of those states. Uh, needless to say, I, I just pointed him directly to a white-collar defense uh, attorney. So if, if anybody is running in the ambulatory services or, or mobile testing arena, um, <laughs> I would love to help put you on the right path. All right, for ambulance services, the portfolio report for Part B payments. 
uh, for anesthesiology services, uh, payments for personally performed services will be a target. Uh, within the chiropractic arena, and, and this is becoming a lot higher uh, area of interest, especially for multi-specialty multi practices, um, and we have integrated practices that more and more are using chiropractic, and surprisingly enough, even my home base here of the Cleveland Clinic has got a pretty large chiropractic department, along with all the acupuncturists out there. So you can cheer at this time uh, that the, uh, the medical arena is becoming more accepting of those different service lines. For chiropractic, it is Part B payments for non-covered services, uh, questionable billing patterns, and we'll talk about what some of those are, um, portfolio report on Part B payments, uh, diagnostic radiology, uh, the high cost tests uh, always are under scrutiny, um, but there is a specific regime of standardization But for all the data miners out there, my opponents on the other side of the contractors, and they have frequency problems that they are looking at for the high-end diagnostic. Imaging services. Uh, Basically, the combination of practice expenses is a big question in the target. All right, independent clinical laboratory billing requirements. This is a new arena. Um, so we have, you know, the old issues of pass-through billing, um, but the independent uh, lab, a lot of times associated with a practice, um, or we have some type of joint ownership concern, uh, that is really going to be examined this year and also moving forward into 16. Ophthalmologists, uh, billing patterns in that arena, and I will admit my uh, lack of information there because I do not have an ophthalmologist on my client list, um, but I'd be happy to do the homework on my own time uh, and, and help somebody out in that arena. Physicians. Place of service coding errors is going to be a big target. Um, we have, unfortunately, probably the, the highest issue uh, is misuse of, NP, of the NPI uh, by MDs and DOs across the country. So uh, one of the most important things you can do as a provider is know exactly who's using your NPI and how they're using it. Um, and be a little less concerned about how much money you can make off of renting out your NPI. All right, physical therapists, uh, high use of outpatient therapy services. This is a real big target. Um, the delegation of therapies has gone under a kind of a revolution in the last several years. It began with Medicare and the direct uh, delegation from PT to PTA, and now most major payers have that standard requirement as well. Um, New England has got a few very liberal states that um, have a, a few different state laws, but it's very important for practices to know that just because you have a state law that supports your position does not mean it's going to be reimbursable. Portable x-ray equipment. Yeah, this was my friend who called me a few months ago. I hope he's not wearing orange today. Um, the transport and setup fee requirements for portable x-rays and other diagnostics, very highly scrutinized. 
sleep disorder clinics. Um, your arena has uh, grown uh, significant interest within 2014 and will remain the same through 15 and 16. We have about 20%, so this will be the second largest category of fiscal resources designated to other providers and suppliers. Uh, Part B prescription drugs, all right, payments for immunosuppressive drug claims and the KX modifiers, payments for outpatient drugs and administration, covered uses for Part B drugs, and the ethical conflict involving prescription drug compendia. Anybody on the line today who has any knowledge or involvement in a compounding pharmacy or some other nature that's been presented to you, I highly encourage you to seek out wise counsel. Um, there is a bullseye on the, on the practice that has uh, compounding or in-office pharmacies for this, uh, this year and next year. So I would encourage you to uh, go back to your healthcare counsel, reach out to First Healthcare Compliance, and, and seek guidance on how to make sure you can keep yourself out of trouble there. Medicare Part D prescription drug program. Um, documentation of administrative costs is much bigger than most people think, and, and especially within smaller healthcare practices. Um, you know, there's more that can be said for uh, great documentation even outside of the clinical perspective. Reconciliation of payments, all right, sponsor reporting of direct and indirect remuneration, reconciliation regarding reopening final payment determinations, ensuring dual eligibilities access to drugs under Part D, documentation of pharmacies prescription drug event data. Uh, the data miners are really having fun within the pharmaceutical arena, um, and as I said earlier, any time that it relates to some type of dual ownership or in-office uh, pharmacy, it, it is uh, doubly uh, draws attention, and so I'd encourage you to find information to make sure you have everything set up clearly for your event. Medicare payments for HIV drugs, all right, for deceased beneficiaries. Yes, this, that is true. You read that correctly. Uh, <laughs> there was a, a real high spike in 04 uh, as the auditors went through, and there was uh, an enormous amount of funds that had been used for HIV patients where it was discovered that the uh, beneficiaries had been deceased for 6, 8, 12 months. Uh, quality of sponsored data used in calculating coverage gap discounts. Uh, we have about 10% within the prescription drug in Part D. The one significant change for uh, the 2016 work plan that was made clear is that they're going to be putting a much higher emphasis in 16 within this arena. Uh, for the general figures, I would say that the uh, drug arena is probably going to be closer to 20 to 25 percent of the overall budget for auditors for 2016. All right, so uh, we're going to go through some old news 
and what's coming uh, for New England that the rest of the country has seen now for a couple years. So uh, hopefully everyone on the call today is very familiar with uh, Iraq, the recovery audit contractor. Uh, they were created in the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. Uh, there was various forms of auditors on the outside of Medicare prior to then, uh, but this is the general authorizing act for what we have today. Uh, these audits are focused on errors and omissions. Uh, there is no intent, question, or element. Um, they, there is no uh, associated investigation by other federal agency. They are simply, you know, external entities that get general directives from CMS and they focus on what their, uh, their target is and then they get paid on a contingent of their recovery. So these were all the horror stories of, you know, the auditors that were just uh, making enormous allegations of overpayments to larger healthcare facilities throughout the country over the past several years. Um, and there were, there were very significant abuses by the, by the auditors. And so we are all very well of that. Uh, your four primary racks is diversified, CGI tech, Conley, and health data. Um, each of them have their major directives and their regulatory controls, but I will tell you from experience, they all operate independently in a very different manner. Um, so I could go drill down into individual questions on how to manage RACs, um, and hopefully most of the people on the call today already have an idea of where they should go there. All right, this is the new arena, and it's going to be very new to probably, um, well, I hope not, but it's most likely going to be very new to majority of people on the call today. This is a ZPIC, uh, Zone Program Integrity Contractors, It's and I labeled it the new beast uh, because they really are. Uh, I have had uh, more struggle with ZPICs in the past two years than I could have imagined. Um, to the point where I was actually uh, invited uh, this month, I'm gonna be going to Baltimore to present to uh, the head of the program integrity, uh, the head of the program integrity division within CMS and a committee over some of the abuses of the ZPICs uh, that I have on my current caseload. So, it, uh, hopefully that's productive and we come up with some real solutions and get some pressure from the top down uh, that will perhaps save uh, a lot of heartache and, and a lot of time and expense for these practices. The new generation uh, of the 1999 program safeguard contractors, most everybody who's been around this arena understands uh, the PSCs. And, and what they did, but they were very limited in volume and not nearly as aggressive as the ZPICs. Uh, the the ZPICs were formed over a stretch of time. Their authorization began in 2009, um, and most of them, except Zone 6, which is New England, uh, were up and rolling by 2011. 
the major difference from a ZPIC to a RAC is that a ZPIC is a fraud and abuse target auditor. Uh, they have a standing collaboration with the OIG, the DOJ, and the FBI. Uh, and they can do something that I call shadow reporting, is what they can feed a live investigation into the investigatory agencies during the course of their audit without a practice knowing it. Uh, this has been pretty scary. Uh, I've had many different clients that have been you know, two months into an audit with a ZPIC and they thought it was just an error-based and an FBI agent shows up at their door or most of the time it shows up at the door of one of their employed providers uh, or a competitor to ask questions. And so this has been a, a real interesting uh, battle. Uh, we have had ongoing FOIA battles over what is really a public record when all of this is going on. Um, you know, ZPICs claim that they've got investigatory rights uh, not to disclose because of their close collaboration with the FBI. However, their mandate within the regulation is focused as simply predominantly an auditor. And so we, we are fighting that battle in a number of different arenas. Uh, and we're going to bring that one home to DC here within uh, the next six months. Now, ZPICs, unlike a RAC, are not contingent paid. They are a fee for service. Um, they're paid uh, at some pretty hefty rates for their services on uh, a performance for their audit work. Now, what this is translated into is, unfortunately, a lengthening of the audit process. Most of my uh, zone program integrity contractors, uh, they have an audit length with um, the begin of the appeal cycle, normally between 18 and 24 months. Uh, the RACs normally averaged about 12 months for smaller practices, obviously larger for the hospitals. The real problem with the ZPICs is that the length and volume of the audits uh, is a tremendous fiscal burden on the practices. And for those that don't have RAC insurance, uh, it, it can be enough to, to put the practice out of business. So there are seven different um, ZPIC zones. Uh, the first is Safeguard, that's California and the islands. Uh, or we got California, Hawaii, Nevada. Um, then we have Advanced Med in the southeast. Uh, Cahaba here in the Midwest. We've got Health Integrity uh, closer towards the west. We've got Advanced Med with the southeast and I apologize. I, Two is the Northwest, and then we have Safeguard in Zone 6. And I've got 2015 there because, amazingly, even though the ZPICs have been active since 2011, there was a contracting dispute uh, between Advanced Med and Safeguard that began in 2010, which uh, they litigated, and they finally resolved in January of this year, 
and Safeguard was announced as receiving the ZPIC contract uh, just in September. And so the real difficult issue for New England Zone is that all of the data and patterns that the different zone program integrity contractors have gained from the rest of the country are going to be at Safeguard or SGS's disposal when they begin their uh, their integrity work in New England. Um, I would encourage uh, any practice that you know has any concern regarding their services or their frequency of denials or records requests. Uh, to take the time to really investigate their services and reach out to any colleagues uh, in the other zones and try to learn from them as much as you can. All right, so we're going to start to move past some of the scary stuff and talk about some things that are very useful to, <laughs> to prevent a lot of the problems. Proactive compliance, and, and, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here because everybody that's on this call cares enough to, to, re, you know, to have joined FIRST Healthcare Compliance and take the time to learn. However, I will give my limited take from the legal arena, uh, not as a compliance expert, it's for you to reach out to Jill and, and the rest of uh, her group. But from the legal perspective, in the audit defense arena, there are some real targets. And some, on the opposite side of that, there's some proactive actions uh, that are very essential to prevent an audit. So when I say current compliance from the top down, uh, I know that a lot of times, especially in small practices, uh, a, a single provider owns, maybe there's one or two providers underneath, a single provider is trying to be the compliance officer as well as the owner and the practice manager, which is very difficult. However, it's absolutely essential that everyone, down to your staff managers and even the people who are help clean your facilities and have access to patient information and all the different areas within your clinic or practice, that they all understand their piece of compliance and they all understand how they work together. So compliance is not only the provider and administrator's responsibilities. All employees must be brought into a comprehensive compliance plan. It needs to be regular update, regularly updated and retaught. Uh, too many times I come into a practice to defend an audit and they've got four or five key employees that you know, I've been hired within the six, last six or eight months and they didn't even know there is a compliance plan for the practice. You've got to have a set intake and training system that clearly focuses on compliance as much as it does production and service to, to patients. A compliance officer uh, must ensure that the compliance plan is a, is quarterly, act, is a quarterly activity. Uh, you must designate time for training and for updates to everyone. Uh, this is it's certainly not sufficient to send out an email blast or to you know put an update in everybody's mailbox. Uh, it needs to define the what all providers and staff roles are, what their duties are, and if your compliance plan should never ever be 
just a document that's collecting dust on a shelf. Uh, one of the most difficult things that I have, unfortunately, on a recurring basis is practices will come to me four or five months after uh, they've had an auditor show up at their door and they will tell me that, you know, yes, we produced the records and I also gave them our compliance plan because I wanted to prove to them that we are making such a good faith effort at compliance. And I asked them, where did they get that? Well, I pulled it out of a binder on the back room. It was sitting on a shelf. And nobody even knew it existed except the owning provider who paid an attorney for it, but never looked at it. Those compliance plans that are not properly implemented, that are sitting on a shelf, will be used as notice. So an auditor will use that as notice to everyone within the practice. And you will be held to the standard of what is in your compliance plan. And if the practice isn't operating that way, it's going to be considered out of compliance and grounds to investigate for recovery. So I, I can't stress enough what it means to have an active compliance plan. So within that arena, we have semi-annual, quarterly as preferred, uh, billing and coding assessment all right, by an outside party that includes updated current payer policies on all services. Uh, and, and I understand that that seems daunting. You, I mean, I go into most practices and they say, how can we do that? We have, you know, 30, 40, 50 different payers. And we've got, you know, if we're going by CPTs, we've got 60, 70 different CPTs. Well, the best way to do it is to lay out a grid. Lay out a grid of services versus payers and make sure that whoever your CO is, that they are regularly reviewing what are our primary volume services. That limits it down to maybe 10, 15 CPTs. What are our primary heaviest payers? That limits it down to probably for most regions three or four different payers. And then you've got an arena, all right? You've got a, a much smaller arena, a grid, where your most targeted services are within. And that is what you essentially must stay on top of. You've got to make sure that all of your bulletins from your payers, all of your quarterly updates are reviewed clearly. For Medicare, you've got to know your LCDs and your NCDs. All right? Just because there's no LCD within your jurisdiction does not mean that a Medicare contractor isn't going to come in and tell you that you have inappropriate services. Uh, right now, one of the largest battles I have for about 20 different clinics is in the southeast over one disputed service where there's no LCD. There wasn't an LCD when, when the audit started a year and a half ago, and there still isn't one. However, Advanced Med has come in and levied re recovery payment uh, recoveries in millions and millions of dollars. At one small practice that uh, has an alleged overpayment of $6.5 million, all based on a lack of an LCD. I cannot stress enough the absolute importance of knowing what your payer policies are. So, uh, and, you know, the most important thing I can say is that you've got to take the time. All right, that's the roadmap to security and reduction of risk within the audit arena. So I highly encourage you to get very familiar 
with your provider manuals, with your LCDs and NCDs. Do not let your owners or slash providers, and I apologize, I don't mean to offend anybody, play compliance officer. Uh, especially within smaller private practices, um, owners and providers have got way too many things to do. All right, they're trying to manage staff. Uh, they're trying to manage the practice. They're trying to handle the fiscal responsibilities. They're also trying to see patients. All right, you cannot throw the additional role of compliance officer on there. If you're a small, if you're a small practice and, and you just don't have the financial capability to hire a certified compliance officer, then First Health is your absolute, you know best resource and, and, and or reach out to some uh, well-vetted, competent healthcare compliance resource that will play that role and digest that information for you so that you can stay current. If you are, you know, a, a practice that has got three, four, five providers, I, you have to invest. It is absolutely worth the reduction in risk to invest in a certified compliance officer. Um, I can across the board and across the country tell you that the practices that take the time to find a good CO are your strongest, healthiest, growing practices. Then obviously uh, the, <laughs> the tedious world in which I live uh, is, is drilling through the endless shades of gray in your regulation and payer policies. And, and yes, I know the payer policies are terribly nebulous. It's uh, <laughs> it's a very arduous task. However, uh, there's a great deal of comparative knowledge within the payer policies. Medicare obviously being your flagship. And you can gain a lot of understanding, even if you're not a Medicare provider, by reaching out and seeing what the regulations are. Um, and that, those will be implemented almost verbatim or very clearly at a reduced scale within your major payer policies. All right, so let's talk about the most practical, useful thing you can do right after this call to help reduce your audit risk. All right, tracking. Tracking is probably the easiest and strongest way to help prevent catastrophe within a small private practice. So what is that? Um, simply, I mean, put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, simply track the date, volume, service, and value of record requests and EOB denials. And you will see trends. Because you see, this is what data miners for the auditors are looking for. And my firm and, and other councils that do this work, if you have that type of information, I can tell you pinpoint, you know, when an audit's coming, what your exposure is, based on the service, right, and based on frequency. And so this is this is the, uh, the the guiding fork. If you're looking for water out there in the desert, uh, this tracking will help your practice be aware that something's coming, and you've got to be aware of it. So whenever your staff is processing records requests. They've got to write down, you know, the volume, the services, so that you can look back. And I understand you as a provider are probably not going to have the time to do that, but you've got to have somebody that will. 
All right? It's not a needless annoyance, you know, that your billing staff is taking care of or your support staff is taking care of. It's the heartbeat of the financial health of your practice, and you've got to have your hand on it. So what, what does the tracking really tell us? It, it, it tells us uh, the likely occurrence of an audit, and it also tells us, hey, there's something going on here. Frequency has improved. I should reach out and figure out what's going wrong. Whether that's First Health, whether that's counsel, uh, you will notice trends that says, I've got a flag waving here. I need to do something about it. All right, so um, we should also track uh, the trends. All right, we should follow the trends of Medicare, the supplemental plans, Medicaid auditing habits. Um, like I started the presentation with, the fiscal plan for 2015 is the for Medicare is the flagship, and your major player, your major payers are going to play cleanup. They're going to follow the successful patterns of Medicare, normally 12 months, 18 months afterwards. So your major payers are going to follow suit based on the strength or weakness of Medicare audits uh, that are occurring right now uh, within the next 8 to 12 months. Um, next, you want to make sure that you have proactive legal counsel. And, and I know I'm going to be tooting my own horn here, so please forgive me. But I'm a good distance from all of you, and I can refer you to someone local if you need to. Um, within the Medicare arena, it's, it's, a, it's a national practice. Um, within a lot of the state law issues, I work with great local counsel in many of the states that you're probably located. But it is essential, all right? And i got to tell some jokes and make fun of my own profession here. So every healthcare practice must have legal counsel that is fully competent in the arena of payer policies and audit defense. All right, that, that is a very, very deep well of legal knowledge. It's not nearly as broad as healthcare. So a healthcare attorney that can do a transaction, set up your provider agreements, um, you know, tell you what the changes in your state scope of practice are, that is not going to be audit defense. It's, it's a different set of regulations, laws, and a different body of knowledge. So I always laugh. Yes, uh, the lawyer friend who helped you buy the real estate, form the entity, or sends personal injury uh, referrals to your practice is nice, but they're simply not sufficiently informed to provide secure advice on, on yes, the ridiculously overcomplicated regulations and processes of state, federal, and private payer law. Um, so what I would encourage you to do is seek out someone, and you know the uh, the American Bar Association, the American Health Lawyers Association have got many different resources uh, for finding uh, counsel within the audit defense and payer arena. Uh, across the nation, and they're an invaluable resource. So I'd encourage you to reach out to them. Uh, my practice, and I know we've got a little more time here, but my practice, um, why have we seen so much on the front end as far as how to prevent problems? It's mainly because we have seen some of the very worst on the back end. <laughs> um, we, we have handled uh, FBI, OIG, the Department of Justice, 
Um, we, we've had, you know, the DEA storm storm practices. It's been pretty scary, uh, but we've had a lot of success. We've had a, a great deal of success. Uh, the practice has narrowed as far as the majority of our work is with the ZPICs and major payers uh, because they're the most active. But I would tell you that uh, finding people with the right resources and the right knowledge base are, are invaluable as you move forward towards uh, putting together a practice that is secure, that is not 100% but has a greatly reduced risk. So um, I know that I'm wrapping up a little sooner than I should have, but I, uh, I think that's the bulk of the material that I've got today. And uh, my contact information is there on the last slide, which I know will be available to you. And please feel free to call, send an email. Um, I'll always make time to talk off the clock. Uh, you know, as I started this pre this presentation with, you know, this is a very personal practice for me. Uh, I, I care about what the healthcare industry has done for my family, and I care about the families that are behind the practices that I represent. So, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I think I'm going to end a little short here, but hopefully everybody gets a chance to eat their dessert uh, at the end of their lunch hour. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please use this.